listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. You know, I don't care what's going on outside. Bring the sleet, bring the snow, the ice secretion. I don't care. It is all better than being on a cruise ship right now. And I mean any cruise ship. I mean, I, I, obviously the quarantined one, that's the worst. And we're going to take you there shortly, try and figure out what is happening on board that boat. But if you're on any cruise right now, and you're thinking to yourself, is this possibly going to happen to me? Oh, my goodness. This is, what does this mean for your vacation plans? Are you a cruiser? We're going to get into that. Also, we're going to try and figure out what's going on with the Raptors. Wow, 12 in a row. And why now, all of a sudden, giant knit scarves are going to be the thing in the city? I'll try and explain that. Also, it's Bob Marley Day that has been proclaimed here in the city of Toronto. We're going to talk about that. But let's begin on the front line of the labor dispute. As you know, elementary teachers across this province are off the job today. If you have a kid in the Toronto system, as I do, that means they will be off again tomorrow. So my son will not be in his grade 6 class today. He will not be in his grade 6 class tomorrow. I asked him if he wanted to come and be on the radio show today. He said, no, nah, I'm good, Dad. I'm just going to vibe. That was his answer. I'm, I'm planning on vibing. But to figure out what's going on in terms of the province is very difficult in terms of this labor dispute because you have a narrative on one side and a narrative on the other. Joining me to talk about it, is the federal leader of the NDP, Jugmeet Singh, who is back here in Ontario lending his support to striking teachers. Hi, Jugmeet. Hey there, how's it going? I'm, I'm doing well. This is, some people might say, stay in your lane. This is an Ontario issue, not a national issue. Well, it's uh, an issue that impacts the future of our kids, and public education is something that I think is really important. It's something that lifts up so many families, and right now there's a, a lot of risks that the Ford government um, are taking with our uh, our healthcare, our, our education system, and they're bringing cuts are going to hurt the future of our kids. So I was in support of teachers and education workers that were uh, that were at a strike earlier today in Ottawa, and I'll be in Toronto tomorrow to lend my support again. Jagmeet, should teachers accept anything less than 2% in terms, of, in terms of wage? Should they dig in and say, it, it's not 2%, we're not signing? Well, my, my real concern is, and, and what I've heard from a lot of teachers, is really the cuts that are being proposed are going to increase class sizes. And, and that's really the biggest, the biggest concern, that the, the cuts that the, the Ford government, the conservative government, is bringing in are going to mean uh, bigger class sizes, less special needs uh, supports, they're going to make it harder for kids to get the quality education they need at a time when we know with the type of economy that's coming in the future, we need to have an incredibly strong educational background and foundation. And that's why investing in our education system is the right thing, not to cut it, to make it as robust and as world-leading as possible, not what the Ford government is doing, which is to make it uh, worse than before. It's the wrong direction to go. You would you would admit that Ontario has a debt and deficit problem. Well, it's it's certainly um, clear that there there's been bad decisions made in the past where uh, liberal and conservative governments have, rather than look at good revenues, have made bad decisions about uh, tax giveaways to wealthy and and profitable corporations instead of making investments in services that has put us into a, a position where we've got to be very careful about where we're putting our resources. But 
the place where we need to put it is in education and healthcare, not cutting education. Because the government obviously says that this is at the end of the day about the finances and the finances of this province. And as you well know, that if they sign a deal with one teacher's union that it says it's this certain percentage, then everyone else gets that same percentage. So if they say 2% to ETFO, then it's 2% for everybody. And the question is whether or not the province can ultimately afford that. Well, I, I try to flip the question and say, you know, what are our priorities as a, as a province or as a country? I would say if you ask any Canadian, do you think that education should be a priority? They would say yes, it should be a priority. And there's other areas where we can look at changes. We know that the Ford government has brought in some changes that are making it uh, where they're prepared to give away more revenue to the wealthiest corporations. That's probably the wrong decision to make. And when it comes to things like education and healthcare, I think Canadians would agree. Let's make some investments. Let's make sure we have world-leading, high-quality education. That's something that's important for my kids and important for the future of, of, of the province. And I think most Canadians would say that. Recent polling has showed that the Ontario NDP is trailing the leaderless Ontario Liberal Party. I'm wondering if you coming to Toronto and you coming uh, to talk about Ontario teachers is an indication of perhaps a weakness of the Ontario wing of the party. I think the Ontario wing is doing a great job. Andrew Horvath is, a, is an awesome leader and uh, as the largest opposition party uh, in recent history in Ontario, the NDP is in a strong spot. Uh, the Liberals, they, they, when they don't have a leader, in fact, it's, it could be any party to anybody. It could mean that it doesn't actually uh, say much about what that support is. Once there's a leader chosen, then, then folks can look at and see, well, what type of leader has been chosen and what do they stand for? And we know that the past, they haven't made the right investments and decisions that help out Canadians and, and Ontarians. And so I see a really strong path for New Democrats to continue to fight for the things that, that Ontarians want better education, better health care, uh, ending hallway medicine, and making sure we, we build an economy that works for everyone. Jug, I mean, from your time here in Ontario, you know well that in terms of trying to get teachers back to work, in terms of legislating them back to work, that first there has to be a declaration by an independent panel that the school year is at risk. And with that in mind, do you support uh, the Elementary Teachers Federation and their move to go with two days a week, having kids out of school two days a week, that seems to be a way, a strategy to inflict the most amount of pain for the longest amount of time on kids and on parents, does it not? Well, I look at this and say, we wouldn't be in this position right now if the Ford government would just get to the table and negotiate a fair deal that didn't put education at risk, that didn't cut to what is the most important investment we can make in our future. So if the Ford government was willing to, to realize that this is a priority, we should be investing in education, we wouldn't be in this situation. So I don't, I don't put it on the, the education workers. I put it on the Ford government and the decision that the Conservatives have made to say we are going to cut the most important investment in the future of the province, education. I would be remiss if I didn't ask about some federal issues uh, sure. and where you are in your party in terms of the approval of the uh, U.S.-Canada-Mexico trade deal. So we have a uh, second reading um, stage that we have indicated that we will uh, 
pass the bill to get to the committee stage where we're going to make sure we take a close look at, at the bill. My, my focus on the new trade agreement is this. I want to make sure that this trade agreement is in the best interest of Canadian workers. I've been told that, we were told that by Prime Minister Trudeau, and he said it was the best deal ever, and it turned out it wasn't. And it was Democrats in the states that actually negotiated protections for workers and um, some improvements to lower the cost of medication. It was Democrats that did the work that the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, should have done. So now I'm not going to take the Prime Minister's word at face value that this is the best deal ever. I know that there's been some improvements to protections for workers, lowering the cost of medication, and, and ensuring that there's some environmental protection in place. I want to make sure this is the best deal possible for Canadians, and particularly with the focus on making sure workers are, are the focus. We've seen in the past trade deals that have helped out wealthy corporations, but it's meant that people, workers, lost their jobs. I don't want to see that happen, and so that's why I'm going to pay close attention to the committee stage where there'll be deputations and evidence brought forward to indicate whether or not these protections will You don't feel it's an imperative to act quickly in terms of getting this through and getting it signed? No, no. I think that we need to be uh, thoughtful. I don't want to delay it in any way, but I just want to do a thorough job. And that means um, I'm more than happy to to do, to do focus on this issue and give it all the time it's required in, in Parliament and make sure it goes quickly to the committee stage and we do the analysis and we do the studies that we need to do. I don't want to in any way delay it, but I don't want to rush it through. I want to make sure it's a, a good deal that protects workers. Jagmeet Singh is the leader of the federal NDP. Thank you so much for being on the program. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to the program. Let's get you up to date with all the coronavirus news from around the world. We'll begin with the update from the Medical Officer of Health, which happened just a short while ago at Queen's Park. Essentially no change in numbers, but a widening of surveillance of people who possibly uh, might have symptoms. So that is ongoing in terms of the Canadian flight evacuating Canadians from the epicenter in Wuhan. That flight, that airline, has now landed at the Wuhan airport. Canadian evacuees will soon board it, and they will bring them back to Canada. The federal government says 211 people have been granted seats on the plane. There's still 162 more waiting to learn if there will be a second trip or to figure out how they will get back to Canada. Those people, of course, on the way to Trenton and stay with us with Global News Radio throughout the course of the day. We have a reporter in Trenton following that story very closely. In China, China's official media says a baby born on Sunday is China's youngest confirmed case of the coronavirus. Hospital officials in Wuhan say the mother had tested positive and the baby was separated from her immediately after birth. They say other mothers with the virus have given birth to babies who tested negative, so it is still unclear if the virus can actually be transmitted in the womb. A Chinese doctor, one of the eight whistleblowers who tried to warn other medics of the coronavirus outbreak but was reprimanded by local police, has died. That according to the Global Times, which is a Chinese news source. Britain and Germany have announced more cases of the virus, bringing the total number of confirmed virus cases in Europe now to 30. In Germany, all the cases have been centered on the same company, an auto parts supplier, whose headquarters in outside of Munich was visited by a Chinese trainer from Shanghai. 
And China has now finished building a second new hospital to isolate and treat patients. The healthcare system in Wuhan has been absolutely overwhelmed. A new 1,500-bed hospital specially built for the virus opened days after a 1,000-bed hospital with prefabricated wards and isolation rooms began taking patients. And then, of course, there is the cruise, the Diamond Princess Cruise. And people quarantined on board. We now have news that a couple of Canadians have tested positive for the coronavirus on that cruise. To get a better sense of what it must be like on board right now, I am joined by Jennifer Weatherhead, who is a travel and style magazine writer, pardon me, with Travel and Style magazine, and joins me. Hi, hi, Jennifer. Hi, Alan. Uh, Jennifer, this is my, my greatest fear. All of these things all wrapped together, being on a cruise a pandemic, and then not being able to leave the room. It, it's true, right? It is. I think that might be most people's uh, biggest fear when it comes to travel, that kind of situation and not knowing sort of what the next steps are and when you'll be able to get out. So it, it can be pretty scary. Do you have number one Abel here? We're just going to play this for you. This is a person from On Board. This is David Abel uh, talking from On Board the Diamond Princess. We've got bottled water, but we've only had one hot drink that's been offered. The meals have completely changed. We are definitely no longer on a luxury cruise. You know, where we had the uh, superb benefit of eating in a dining room and having a choice from the menu, those days are over. I just want to put a quick call out, as we heard there, from a person on board the Diamond Princess for your comments at 416-870-6400. Let me know if this is changing your idea about going on a cruise and, and what it means for you. You know, Would you go on a cruise? Have you been a cruise person before, and does this change your mind? And I'm speaking uh, with Jennifer, pardon me, Jennifer Weatherhead, who is with Travel and Style magazine. Jennifer, does this change your uh, ideas about cruising and whether or not you'd go on a cruise? You know what? I think it does, particularly if you're going to areas of the world where there are a lot more cases. So I think when stuff like this happens, the travel industry does take a hit, whether that's with airlines, with hotels, different destinations, and with cruise lines. Maybe not so much with cruise lines as it would with an airline. Um, but, you know, I would be cautious of this. And if you are still going to be going on cruises um, because I mean there are cruises through the Mediterranean, the Caribbean, all over the world. And if you're going on a cruise in one of these other destinations where it hasn't really been having an impact yet, but you are concerned, I would talk to those cruise lines, um, talk to your travel insurance, make sure you have travel insurance because the last thing you want to do is, you know, be footing a bill or trying to get medical attention without travel insurance while you're away. Um, you know, you really, if you are going to keep doing it, and I'm not suggesting that people cancel their cruises uh, or cruise vacations, but put in a little bit of extra work, a little bit of extra effort to make sure that you are protected and you know exactly what's happening. Give me a sense of, do you, do you know this boat, maybe not this one in particular, but give me a sense of, I mean, it seems from the visuals to be a just a huge boat. There's a lot of people on this thing. Yeah, so I think that's also one of the big concerns, obviously, when people think about being on a cruise is that these are, some, in some cases, it's like a, a city on the water, you know, they're massive and they just keep getting bigger and bigger um, and offering more opportunities to be in different destinations. So in some ways it can be a little bit, um, 
it creates a fear because there are so many people kind of in a confined space. Of, that's the fear a lot of people have with flying these days. You know, you're, you're in this confined space with recycled air um, with people who may be sick. And you kind of get that same sense being on a cruise ship. Um, but I would say that cruise lines are probably doing as much as they can to make sure that uh, they're taking proper precautions and they're screening and they're trying to make it as best as they can to make people feel more comfortable and more safe and to contain things as best as they can. Jennifer Weatherhead is with Travel and Style Magazine. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Cruises. I don't know. I, I think I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little dubious. I'm a little skeptical. Let's take you live to the White House right now. Donald Trump speaking. He's holding up a copy of the Washington Post with a giant headline that says, Trump acquitted. He's holding it up in triumph right now, showing it to everyone to applause. This is Donald Trump speaking live. Take that home, honey. Maybe we'll frame it. It's the only good headline I've ever had in the Washington Post. But every paper is the same. Does anybody have those papers? Does anybody have them? Because they're really uh, like that, so I appreciate that. Uh, But some of the people here have been incredible warriors. They're warriors. And this, from a legal standpoint, this is a political thing. And every time I'd say, this is unfair, let's go to court, they say, sir, you can't go to court. This is politics. And we're treated unbelievably unfairly. And definitely, and, uh, we first went through Russia, Russia, Russia. It was all bullshit. We then oh, man, the, the CRTC is coming for me. And they should have come back one day later. They didn't. They came back two years later after lives were ruined, after people went bankrupt, after people lost all their money. People came to Washington to help. Other people. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I say. They came, one or two or three people in particular, but many people. We had a rough... You're listening to Donald Trump, who is uh, speaking live in Washington right now, taking a bit of a victory lap after he was acquitted in the Senate trial, acquitted of impeachment. Of course, the asterisk with this one is Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, who for the first time in any impeachment trial, voted against his party... Mitt Romney, the Republican, voting to impeach the president. I have one more quick note about coronavirus before we move on, because I'm going to talk about Raptors in our next segment and what's going on with them, especially in the advance of the trade deadline later on this afternoon. But this one is out of Vancouver, where the Chinese consulate in Vancouver has issued a statement that is upset with the Vancouver province, the front page of the province referred to something, uh, the novel coronavirus, as, quote-unquote, the China virus. According to the Consulate General, we strongly oppose and condemn the use of such discriminatory words. Oh, something to keep in mind. It is the novel coronavirus.
With just 30 seconds on the clock, Serge Ibaka drains a triple, and the Raptors extend their winning streak to a franchise best 12 games Wednesday night with an absolutely riveting comeback, 119-118 victory over the visiting Indiana Pacers. And I would be remiss if I did not mention the scarf. The scarf being worn by Serge Ibaka on his way into the game that is now a internet meme. All the while, we're wondering what's going on with Masai. Will he stay or will he go? As we're counting down as well to a trade deadline later this afternoon. Lots to discuss and to help me figure it all out, Scott Stinson is on the line. Hi, Scott. Hey, Alan. How are you? I'm great. You write in the sun, even the most ardent Raptors fan would have to admit that winning a title in New York would change Messiah Jury's life and legacy much more than winning another one here, because Toronto's not L.A., New York, Boston, Chicago, or Miami. Does that mean that the pull to the big cities is going to be just too much for Messiah? It might eventually, Alan, although it seems like this time around, uh, as sometimes happens in sports, the story's already advanced. Um, it's, it's the rumors are now that New York is, and the Knicks are not going to wait on a player, uh, a player, a guy like Masai. Uh, they're going to go ahead and hire somebody else to do the president job. So at least this time around, it doesn't look like we're going to see him depart. But I do still think that uh, the most likely path of of him in his career is that eventually he ends up in a in a big U.S. market somewhere, and that he might be here for another year or two, or even a little bit longer than that. But at some point, the pull of going and being the main guy in a massive U.S. market where the NBA is just a bigger deal than it is here, uh, we'll probably eventually see him do that. So a bigger pull to build something that is broken now and build it into something rather than to repeat. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, the Knicks, again, it doesn't look like that's going to happen this time around, but but they have been a bad franchise for 20, 30 years. And if you were the guy that, that brought a title to New York, I mean, that would just be, you know, a, 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 a kind of thing that you could not do here uh, in terms of the the praise it would get you, the attention it would get you, the fact that you'd be doing it in one of the most famous cities in the world, and so on and so forth. It is it is not unlike somebody who were able to bring a Stanley Cup to Toronto being sort of the biggest thing you could possibly do in hockey. Um, so I think it's kind of the inverse of that. Basketball is just a bigger deal in the States, and hockey is a bigger deal in Canada, and, and that will always be us. I'm speaking with Scott Stinson, who is a sports writer for Post Media. And uh, Scott, w- when we look at a dozen games, we got a franchise best streak right now. Mm-hmm. We're hot. Give me a sense of where you realis- realistically think this team is in terms of chances to repeat. Well, they're very good, Alan, and I think way better than most of us expected. We thought they would be good, they would be competent. They lost Kawhi Leonard, but they still had a lot of talented players, at least for this season. We thought they'd, they'd you know, make a decent uh, run back at it this season. They've been better than any expectation, especially when you consider that they've had a ton of injuries this year. They've they've missed almost every significant player for a meaningful stretch. So they've been very good. Um, the question about their ceiling, I think, remains a little because when you get into a playoff series against a team like Milwaukee 
or a team like Boston, uh, even a Philadelphia who they beat last year, these sort of fully formed teams with lots of big stars on them, there's going to be a question as to whether they can beat them over a seven-game series. But they've already sort of proven already this year that they can far exceed expectations. And so I think almost like even if they do nothing between now and the end of the season in terms of changing their roster – um, I think we've seen that they're they're going to give it a good run, and I, I don't think any team in the East or even the West would be terribly excited about a playoff series against the Toronto Raptors. They've just proven over and over again that they are good enough and frisky enough to to cause headaches for any team. I got two questions left. One, do you sure. expect any kind of uh, move before the trade deadline? Anything big coming? You think down this afternoon? And then what's going on with the scarf? <laughs> well, the first one's easy. I don't expect anything significant. I mean, maybe there's some tinkering going on. But again, having just talked about how, how surprisingly good they've been, I think that that has only gone to, to mean that they will not make big moves at the trade deadline. Um, they're pretty happy with what they have. And I think they want to see what they can do with this group. We might see a small trade, but I don't think anything too big. The scarf thing's funny. Uh, there was a there was a, basically an online uh, Serge Baca has a million irons in the fire in terms of his media career, and one of the things he did was a video with OG and Yanobi talking about fashion, and it ended with them sort of, I guess you would call a scarf challenge. And then yesterday at the uh, at the game. OG showed up in a hilariously long Burberry scarf, and then that was one-upped by Serge Ibaka wearing a scarf, which I have to admit, if I was wearing the scarf, you would see nothing else. Like, it would be my top of my head popping out of the scarf because it was just so incredibly enormous. Uh, but, yeah, <laughs> it seemed to work for him. <laughs> it, it looked like, like, where possibly would you get a scarf that big? I just it, it, it seem like, you know, somebody must have been knitting for, like, you know, 72 yeah. hours straight, like a team of them to get in, that thing. In, indeed. Like he said, give me the, poss- the, the largest scarf you had, and then he took three of them and they knit them together. <laughs> and then he ended up having his season high in points last night, and as you said, hit the game-winning shot. So, obviously, giant scarves for all. That's right. I'm just that's got to be the thing they hand out at the game next is just giant scarves <laughs> for everybody. Scott like Simpson, thank you so much. A writer, a post media writer uh, covering the Raptors and all Thanks things so Toronto. Thank you so much for being on the program. Cheers. Welcome back to the program. Donald Trump is speaking in Washington, taking a bit of a victory lap after his acquittal in the impeachment trial. He began this news conference by saying, quote, this is not a news conference. It's not a speech. It's not anything. It's a celebration. And he continues to speak without notes. Let's join it live. They're vicious and mean. Vicious. These people are vicious. Adam Schiff is a vicious, horrible person. Nancy Pelosi is a horrible person. And she wanted to impeach a long time ago when she said, I pray for the president. I pray for the president. She doesn't pray. She may pray, but she prays for the opposite. (laughs) But I doubt she prays at all. And these are vicious people. But they do two things. They stick together. Historically, I'm not talking now. They stick together like glue. That's how they impeached, because they had whatever the number is, 220 people. So if they don't lose anybody, they'll be able to impeach anybody. You could be George Washington. 
You could have just won the war. And they say, let's get him out of office. And they stuck together. And they're vicious as hell. And they'll probably come back for more, but maybe not, because the Republican Party's poll numbers, Mitch, have now gone up more than any time, I think, since 2004, 2005. And you know what happened then? But in normal times, decades, you would call it. That was a little unusual time. It was for a very short period. Uh, the Republican Party, Party's poll numbers and Donald Trump's poll numbers are the highest I've ever had them. So maybe they won't. It's no way to get your poll numbers up. It's not worth it. Because from my family standpoint, it's been very unfair for my family. It's been very unfair to the country. Think of it. A phone call. A very good phone call. I know bad phone calls. This is a phone call where many people, I think Mike Pompeo was probably on the call. Where's Mike? Mike Pompeo was on the call. Uh, many people were on the call. I know that many people. They even have a printi, bringing up an old favorite word of mine, the apprentice. They have a printi. They have people on these calls. And I know there are many, when I speak to the head of a nation, and they have many people on. I mean, also, do you think they're just, in the case of Ukraine, he's a new president, Seems like a very nice person, by the way. His whole thing was corruption. He's going to stop corruption. We even have a treaty. 2001, 1999. It's a treaty, signed treaty, that we will work together to root out corruption in Ukraine. I probably have a legal obligation, Mr. Attorney, to report corruption. But they don't think it's corrupt when a son that made no money, that got thrown out of the military, that had no money at all, is working for $3 million up front, 83000 a month, and that's only Ukraine. Then goes to China, picks up $1.5 billion. Then goes to Romania, I hear, and many other countries. They think that's okay. Because if it is, is Ivanka in the audience? Is Ivanka? Boy, my kids could make a fortune. <laughs> I think they could make a fortune. It's corrupt. But it's not even that. It's just general corruption. And the other thing is mentioned in the call, and something that I've told Mike Pence, our great vice president, I would tell him all the time. And I told him when he went on the trip, because he was over there. He never mentioned anything about this when you had your meeting. It's a terrible thing. But I told Mike, I said, Mike, we're giving them money. And, you know, you're always torn about that, because we have our... All right, you are listening to Donald Trump speaking live in Washington at the White House and speaking without notes. And as you can hear, it's taking a bit of a victory lap in terms of his in terms of his acquittal in the impeachment trial in the Senate. I want to talk quickly about teachers, bring it a little closer to home right now. Of course, if you are a parent and you've got kids in elementary, you know that they're out today province-wide. They are out in a number of GTA boards tomorrow and then next week tuesday they're off the job again and then wednesday for toronto and select boards go to globalnews.ca for a full list if you have any questions about when your school board will be hit and this is in addition to rotating strikes and job action by other unions but by far it is etfo that has been the most aggressive and etfo has been most the most aggressive in previous labor disruptions as well, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario always sort of takes that lead. I don't know why that is, but 
but that is indeed the case. And last night I was speaking with the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, Robert Benzi. I had him on Global News in an interesting conversation about what the government's endgame might be. Does the Ford government have an endgame here to end this labor disruption? If they do, it's a closely guarded secret because I don't think they want a strike. I don't think the teachers' unions, plural, want a strike, and yet, or want a, 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 a work stoppage, a full work stoppage, because we've, of course, had strikes and we're having more strikes today, more tomorrow, more Friday, more next week. Uh, but if there's an end game, I don't know what it is. I don't see a plan. You know, we talk about teachers' unions, we often sort of lump them all together, but it, is it possible that one union would sign before another, or will it be all or none? I think that that is a great possibility. There are four ma major unions, the high school teachers, the, the elementary teachers, the French language teachers, and then the Catholic teachers. And they all have similar issues, but they're not identical issues. So if the government could find one of those unions to settle with, then it might lead to settlement with the other unions. Um, but so far, the unions have been sticking pretty closely together. They're all seeking generally the same sorts of things. That is uh, Rob Benzie talking about the fact that it is possible here that we could have one union say, okay, no, I give, or I'll take that deal. And then that sort of, you know, the, it, it's not a monolith in terms of all of the unions together. That is, we've seen this happen in the past. Here's the thing to keep in mind, though, that there is a kind of a, a Me Too clause in all of these things. So if one union holds out the longest and then gets a better deal because of it, all the other unions then retroactively get the same deal as well. And then if you're asking yourself about that end game, about possibly trying to legislate kids back to, or legislate teachers back to work, pardon me, first thing that has to happen is that this independent panel, this obscure panel, has to actually say that the school year is in jeopardy. It is at risk. And so at this point, you could not say, well, the school year is at risk. We've only had a couple of days off. And if, if, as they spread this out, two days a week for elementary kids, one as a province-wide and another rotating, two days a week, and we keep going at this, it, who knows how long it will be before this panel would say, no, you know, cumulatively, that's, that year is, the year is in trouble. And it's going to require that. Before the province can say, no, you got to go back. So that gives you a sense of just how long this might go on for. And here is another thing. You know that is what is factoring into the union strategy is what has happened since the Ford government got elected. What has happened? The Ford government enacts a change, brings in a policy, there's outrage, there's anger, people show up at Queen's Park, Ford government reverses course. Here's Rob Benzie on that again, whether or not those climb downs are emboldening the unions and the union strategy. I believe that that's one reason why the unions are feeling that they can, can continue with these rotating strikes 
and because they, they believe the government will capitulate because history has shown that the government has capitulated, whether it was on uh, the issue such as autism where they initially said $300 million, now it's a $600 million program and they're still fixing it uh, for, the, for families with uh, children with autism. Uh, the, they, John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, stood up to them and said, look, I don't want you to uh, upload the subway. Uh, they capitulated on that. They didn't take over the Toronto subway. They didn't uh, proceed with the public health cuts last year that they said they were going to in the budget because Mayor Tory and, and other civic leaders, Jim Watson in Ottawa uh, among them, said, no, we're not going to go along with that. So I think the, the Tories would argue that they, they listen and they're, and, they're, and they're malleable and, then they're, and they're willing to be flexible. Uh, the unions might say, yeah, they are, and that's why we're going to hold out and see what we can get. That is Rob Benzie from the Toronto Star. Uh, let's take you to Ottawa. Quickly, we have an update, a coronavirus update federally. Let's check in. B. Trenton. Uh, Chinese health authorities are screening travels, travelers before they uh, get to the airport, and anyone who is ill will not be allowed to board the flight. D&D medical staff will also assess passengers taking the temperature of each traveler and checking for symptoms of the coronavirus. In addition, D&D staff are also assessing the medical status of each traveler to determine if they're fit to fly. On board the flight, D&D medical staff will perform health assessments of each person and travelers will complete a health declaration and receive and sign a passenger information and acknowledgement form. Any passenger who falls ill on the plane will be isolated on the plane. The flight will stop in Vancouver for refueling and before landing, the flight crew will alert officials if any passengers on the plane are showing signs of illness. And if a passenger requires urgent care, protocols are in place to transfer them safely to a medical facility. That is a live update happening in Ottawa right now on the Canadians who are being airlifted and evacuated out of Wuhan. And as you heard, they will be first taken to Vancouver and then on to Trenton. I want to quickly mention one other thing that today is Bob Marley Day. Bob Marley was born on February 6, 1945 in Nine Mile, Jamaica. He died in May of 1981 at the age of 36, four years after being diagnosed with melanoma. He has an important connection to Toronto. You know, he first played here on June 8th at 1975 at Massey Hall, came back a number of times. And the mayor of Toronto, John Tory, declaring today Bob Marley Day. And as I was doing a bit of a search about the history of Bob Marley, I came across this. This is from ITN. This is a foreign news source, a British news source. Back in December of, I believe it's 2013, yeah, 2013. This when Rob Ford was mayor. And, of course, Rob Ford had some troubles at the time. And they decided to play a little Bob Marley. You remember this? Here's the report. That is Toronto Mayor Rob Ford dancing to Bob Marley's One Love. Wow. Forgetting the controversies of recent weeks, Mr Ford decided to join his colleagues in a little boogie on the floor of Toronto City Council. Everyone seemed to be joined in harmony as a local jazz group performed. 
Council has been struggling to make it through its agenda in recent weeks due to the scandal surrounding Rob Ford after he admitted to smoking crack cocaine. All right, that is ITN in December of 2013 with a report on then-Mayor Rob Ford dancing. Takes you back, doesn't it? Can't believe it has been already that long.